When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for downloading the Intelligence Squared podcast. This week's episode is a conversation between James Comey and the BBC's Emily Maitlis. James Comey is the former director of the FBI and author of A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies and Leadership, which has sold over a million copies worldwide since it was published in April. In A Higher Loyalty, Comey reveals some of the most high-pressure situations of his career. In today's era of fake news, polarised politics and alternative facts, he argues integrity, honesty and ethical leadership seem more important than ever. A High Loyalty is available on Amazon and all good booksellers. And now, here's the episode. We hope you enjoy listening. What a lovely welcome. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to see so many of you here. It's fantastic. Um, James Comey, the former director of the FBI, who served under Presidents Bush, Obama and Trump, opens his book cover with a question. What is ethical leadership. How do you do what is right instead of what is politically expedient? Now, he tries to answer that and explain the actions that turned out to be so pivotal to America's 2016 presidential election, the election of Donald Trump, in the following 300 pages of his book, A Higher Loyalty. And tonight, we have the chance to talk to him about the decisions he made, the calls he took the people he met, the conversations that took place behind closed doors, the lives that were perhaps changed forever by that curious set of circumstances that have been played and replayed in so many of our minds, and I'm sure in James Comey's own. Director Comey and I met once before. It was shortly after the publication of his book in New York when I interviewed him for BBC Newsnight. But things have moved on since then, both in terms of America's own story, the president's newest moves and policies, and in terms of what we also know about the Department of Justice report into your own actions. Uh, you were called insubordinate. We'll come back to that in a second, and I should explain that this is a conversation for about 45 or 50 minutes, and then it's very much yours, and we will throw the lights up and uh, the mics out, and very much welcome your participation and your questions. If you can make them concise questions, then we get many more in and uh, go around with more hands. So thank you for that. Let's start with a nice, gentle one, James Comey. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> Do you feel responsible for bringing Donald Trump to power? <laughs> uh, that's all you got, huh? 
<laughs> That's it. Um, I, I don't, although I hear people who make the argument that the decisions we at the FBI and I ultimately made in October had an influence on the election. I don't know whether that's true. I hope and pray it's not true. I hope it doesn't sound odd to you. It just increases the pain. It doesn't change how I think about the decision that had to be made on October 28th because we couldn't make that decision thinking about whose electoral fortunes it would be helped or hurt. And, and so it doesn't change how I think about it, believe it or not. I hope someday... My wife, who's actually here tonight, was a strong Hillary Clinton supporter, and she would like there to be a she would like there to be a scientific study that proves her husband was utterly irrelevant. <laughs> and I think that'd be a wonderful thing. But honestly, it doesn't change looking backwards how I think about the terrible choices I faced. Until that scientific experiment is done, do you accept that, arguably, after Putin, perhaps no one had? greater outside influence on that election than you. <laughs> I, I actually don't. And here's why. That's a little bit like, let's assume that my decision had an impact on the election. It's a little bit like blaming the, a kicker in American football for missing a field goal at the last second of a game that you were supposed to win by 40 points. That... that you could go back and say, well, okay, well, why did you have, why did you talk about classified information on your server? Why did you not campaign in Michigan and Wisconsin and Western Pennsylvania? There's lots of questions to be asked as to why the election was that close that there could be a marginal influence by a decision. But I try to stay away. I just, I just voiced a lot of the analysis I've heard. I try and stay away from it because I knew when we made the decision the reason we hated the decision was there was a chance we would have an impact on the election. The question was, which of the two options was the least terrible? But I assumed that we might have an impact. And so that's how I think about it. I don't know that I would ascribe that kind of responsibility to myself, especially when I look back over the uh, significant events of the two years before that. And so I'm not trying to dodge responsibility, but I'm not trying to yank it mm. and hug it to myself either. Let, let us um, go back. Let's start, as it were, give, give you a bit more of the story before we get to the end. Uh, if I start you in July 2015, Hillary Clinton's the Democratic front runner. You open that first investigation into Clinton and her personal email account. And it's worth explaining because I think this is something that people often get wrong. It wasn't that she wrote on Gmail. Exactly. It was the question of whether classified information had been passed through an unclassified source. Exactly. Something that gets lost all the time. It doesn't matter how she's communicating so long as she's not communicating classified information on a system that's not supposed to contain that kind of information. And you were trying to work out whether classified information had gone out of the system and what she was thinking if that had been the case. That was the investigation, essentially. Correct, because we knew from long work with the counter-espionage section of the Department of Justice, which is the part of the, the department would handle the, the prosecution, that without proof that the government employee knew they were doing something they shouldn't be doing, they would never prosecute it. They didn't prosecute mistakes or sloppiness, even extraordinary sloppiness. You had to prove the person knew they were communicating in a way that was prohibited with, with classified information. And that, that's as it should be. 
The rest it was left for discipline. You'd get fired, you'd get fined, you'd get suspended, but not prosecuted unless we could show that, that mental intention to do right. something wrong. So it is a criminal investigation that's opened. And you talk about the background noise, the drumbeat of the conservative media, I think is your phrase. The sense that it was unlikely to be a case that the Department of Justice would prosecute. You knew that, and yet you went ahead and you made that public. Now, for many people, that will have been the moment where your role changed. You crossed the line. You said, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to tell the public exactly what I'm doing, and you knew what the ramifications of that would be. Yes. i got to back you up just a little bit. We got that case referred to us publicly by one of the institutional watchdogs in the United States, the Intelligence Community Inspector General. They had done a review and saw lots of classified topics in her unclassified email system. And so they sent it to the FBI as a referral. Career people in the FBI opened it to investigate because it was worthy of investigation. We knew that unless we found something really interesting, it probably wasn't going to be something that would be prosecuted. After 10 months of investigation, that seemed clearer and clearer to me. And then the challenge was, so how does the Obama Justice Department credibly close a criminal investigation of one of the two candidates for president of the United States, and not just any candidate, but the Democratic candidate who had been Secretary of State under President Obama? How do you do that in a way that maintains the American people's trust and confidence in the institutions of justice? You're leaping ahead. No, no, no. I'm trying to explain why I did what I... I <laughs> but you, you haven't asked me closed why it yet. You, you, you just opened the first one. You've opened the... Oh, the, I misunderstood you. I thought you wanted me to talk about the announcement at the end. No, I want to talk first of all about the July 2015 where you've opened it and you've made that public. No, we didn't make it public until three months later. Three months later. Yeah. So you're into the um, investigation. And I think this is what you were referring to when you said either way it was going to play badly. You just had to decide which was worse. And it was your... Was it your deputy director, Giuliani, who said... Giuliano, I should say. You yeah, different, know different person. Yeah, very different characters. Yeah. I'm and not he said that close <laughs> with the second one anymore. We'll come on to him a bit yeah. later. He said, and I quote, you know you're totally screwed, right? Yeah. yeah. So that sense that you and he both knew or both believed whatever course of action you did at that point would be the end. Right. To, to take a current sports metaphor... At that moment, we were appointed the referee in a World Cup match that was going to be vicious and incredibly close down to the wire. So there was a really good chance one team was going to hate us. Now, it turned out that both teams hated us. Well played. But we knew at that moment we're stuck in the middle of this game. The whole world is watching. No matter what we do, one half of the political spectrum will be angry. We could recommend charges, that would anger the Democrats. We could refuse to recommend charges, that would anger the Republicans. There's certain freedom in that, by the way. <laughs> but what was interesting is you took it to the Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, and she advised you not to call it an investigation. She took you aside and she said, don't call it an investigation, call it a matter. Yeah. What did you sense she was trying to tell you in that? What was that about? I don't know for sure. This was three months after we had started the investigation. And our normal practice at the Department of Justice and the FBI is we don't confirm the existence of an investigation unless it's in the public interest to do so. And so typically we would confirm an investigation to reassure the public that we're looking at something that they care about or to explain activity that would otherwise mm -hmm. be evident. And so after three months of 
refusing to confirm an investigation that the whole world knew we were doing because we were out interviewing people and the candidates were talking about it, I asked to meet with the Attorney General because I was about to have an encounter with the press where I knew I'd be asked again. And I said to Loretta, who I like and like then and still like, I said, I think it's probably time for us to confirm that we're doing this. And she said, I agree, but call it a matter. And I said, why would I do that? And she said, just call it a matter. And that actually made the hair stand up on the back of my neck a little because the Clinton campaign had been struggling to avoid characterization of this as an investigation. They'd called it a security referral, a security review. And so Loretta's direction to me, we don't do matters, we do investigations, it's in our name. And that that direction, <laughs> that that direction to me roughly tracked what the political people were doing. And so I was, that's what made the hair stand up. I probably should have said, Loretta, come on. Can, can I just interpret yeah. those, the hairs standing up? Yeah. Means that you felt she was acting on what Hillary Clinton would have preferred. Right. Now, whether that was her intention or not, I didn't know. But it was, it was eerily tracking the political effort to minimize the work. Do you think that was her phrase, matter, or do you think somebody had asked her to pass that on to you? I don't know. I don't know. And look, it's possible that for some reason, unconnected to the political narrative, she wanted me to lower the temperature on it, but it was close enough in time and in language to the political effort to minimize that it concerned me, which is why I asked her directly. She's new, and so I asked her directly, why would I do that? And she just gave me the order again, which to my mind said, the boss doesn't want to talk about this anymore. But she's your boss, so you do it. Correct. And I also thought, it's kind of silly, because the press, as much as I love the press, they're going to miss the distinction. If I say, we're, invest we're looking at that matter, they're all going to report I confirmed the investigation. And we which did. Is, which is we what did. happened. Yeah. So this investigation gets underway. You find so far nothing of substance, and you're trying to close it in a way that still maintains confidence and trust in what you do and for the American people at a time of sort of heightened political activity. And then in early 2016, there was a development. And you say this was a development that threatened to challenge that effort significantly, a development still unknown to the American public to this day, materials from a classified source that could have cast doubt on the Attorney General's independence with the Clinton investigation. Yeah. So what could have killed that confidence and trust? I have to choose my words carefully because it's still classified. The FBI reviewed my book and approved me using precisely that language, so I'm not going to be too expansive here. There was material that was shared with the U.S. government that I didn't believe was, very, was real and that would be used by partisans to argue, if it became public, that Loretta Lynch was in cahoots with the Clinton campaign. So a sort of dossier, a, a dossier that, that... Well, I don't want to characterize it, but it, it, was, it was documents that would allow people to argue that. Now, I didn't believe that, because actually my only conversation with Loretta about the case had been that matter one, and then as far as I could tell, she didn't touch it again. I also knew her and respected her, but I mentioned this a couple times already, faith and confidence 
in the perception of justice is important is as important as the reality of justice. And so I started to worry mm-hmm. this actually could be used by people to argue that the Obama Justice Department is fairly compromised and is working on behalf of the Clinton campaign. I don't want to get you into trouble. I know your, your sort of hands are tied, but I'm just I'm trying to if you like, explain it for, for a British audience, yeah. what it could have been, um, whether you think it was a, about her being offered a job as an attorney general under Clinton, would it have been in relation to her career path? Would it have been in relation to Bill Clinton? Because you described this very odd meeting of the two of them on a private jet and a 20-minute conversation nobody else heard. Was it a personal matter? Was it a career matter? It, ref- it reflected, again, I'm not crediting it, although the, the material is real. Some people have said it was a forgery. No, real information that I didn't believe, but that, that would that related to her discharge of her official duties in connection with the investigation uh, and would open her up and all of us to the accusation that she was controlling the FBI for the benefit of the Clinton campaign and keeping them informed on what I was doing. And... The challenge was, and the hard thing about talking about it is not just the classification, is I don't want to hurt Loretta, but this was real and a factor. She knew about it, did she? she? She didn't know about it at the time. We defensively briefed her, told her about it later on, but it was concerning enough that you actually see echoes of it in, I'll give you a little bit of thing that the American press hasn't figured out yet. You actually see echoes of it in the public texts of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, the two people who were working right. on it. There's a point in the early part of 2016 where they react to new information and start saying the director's now going to have to call for a special prosecutor. That's what they were reacting to. But it wasn't those lines, just to, to bring you up to date with the unfamiliar names perhaps, the, the lines that they said, we'll stop Trump, we're going to stop Trump. No, I think, I don't know when that was, but these were, should I tell to make sure the folks know this sort yep. of tale? These were two, a senior agent on the case and a junior lawyer, each of whom were married to other people, had a romantic relationship. And to hide it from their spouses, they used our phones to text with each other. (laughs) And I know this this may lead you to believe we don't have the brightest bulbs at the FBI. (laughs) But surely they would know we archive all of our texts at the FBI. And so in these texts, they're carrying on an affair and they're bad-mouthing everybody. Everybody. Um, and, but they especially badmouth Donald Trump. And so we'll probably get to that later. But they react to this information that I'm talking about in those texts. They don't disclose it uh, in their texts. But they were, and everybody on the team was very worried about this information. Now, what consoled us was, this isn't going to become public until after I'm dead. Right? This is so sensitive that it'll be 50 years before the United States government declassifies it. And so I thought, you know, it's a little worrisome. And there were other things that had happened. President Obama had twice given press interviews where he said there's really no case there with Hillary Clinton, which he didn't know. But I thought, well, this isn't going to come out. And so 50 years from now, people may say, oh, looking back, I wonder if there was an issue with the attorney general. Just go back on that, because it's really interesting. Uh, President Obama went on TV, he went on 60 Minutes, and he said Clinton's email use was a mistake. Now, you think he actually jeopardized your whole investigation's credibility by saying that? Sure. I mean... We're now in an entirely different world, but at least then I was shocked that the President of the United States. <laughs> and was that something you would, would you feel able to say that privately to him? Why did you do that? That was an incredibly unhelpful thing. I don't know. Again, I didn't have one-on-one meetings with the President of the United States back in the good old days. Yeah. And so 
I, I don't know, but I was really surprised by that and troubled. He's a highly intelligent and principled person, and so I don't know why he did it. But again, the central challenge is going to be closing this case credibly with the American people. The Obama Justice Department convincing the American people we did a credible investigation. The President of the United States saying publicly there's no there there Mm -hmm. severely undercut that. So that was another brick in the load for my worry that we're going to struggle to credibly end this thing. So you're about to bring it to a close now. We're on July the 15th, 2016, and it's the end of the first investigation, and you're writing drafts, and you're trying to work out the right phrases you use. Should you say she was sloppy? Should you say she was grossly negligent? Should you say she was careless? In the end, you give that press conference. The first time, I think, you became a a recognisable public figure on the sort of world stage, and you called Hillary Clinton uh, non-criminal, but extremely careless. It was a choice of words that you came to regret. Yeah, because my goal was to be transparent with the American people. And by transparency, describe what we found, what we make of it, and what we're recommending. I wasn't trying to attack her, Mm. but I figured I've got to characterize it in some way. But I screwed up the characterization because I don't want to get too boring, too lawyerish here, but that allowed people in Congress, Republicans, to seize on an old statute from 1917 that made gross negligence a crime and say, ha, he says she committed gross negligence. Look at extremely careless. They're the same thing. What I was trying to do was say, okay, there's ordinary sloppiness where you leave a document in a Starbucks and then there's criminal conduct where you know you're doing stuff Mm. you shouldn't do and then there's this, which actually is quite a bit above the Starbucks. doesn't quite get here. I should have said actually really sloppy to characterize it in a way that people could understand, but by choosing extremely careless, I walked into this whole sideshow about this old statute. You had, at that point, done something which broke with protocol. Um, You knew that. You said you were personally offering the American people unusual transparency. So just the, the fact that the FBI director was going out, making this speech, choosing his words carefully, you'd already, again, crossed that line. You'd sort of entered into the public, dare I say, political sphere at that point? Yeah, I, I, I get why you say that. I actually think about it differently. I, I entered into the public sphere to offer the American people transparency so they would believe their institutions of justice had acted honestly, competently, and independently. We were investigating one of the two candidates for president of the United States. The attorney general had a variety of things that made it difficult for her to announce it, If we'd done the normal thing and just said one line, no case here, a corrosive doubt, not driven by Fox News or political wingnuts, but by ordinary Americans about, wait, what's the deal here, would have crept in and undercut the credibility of really important institutions. And I had the ability to do something the Department of Justice has long done in extraordinary cases where the public has great interest. We've long given them lots of details about cases that we didn't charge, so they knew we did it in a good way. Ferguson, Missouri is an example the terrible killing of Michael Brown by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The FBI investigated that. We brought no charges against the police officer, but we published an 80-some page report on the entire investigation because the people deserve that transparency. So my thinking here was, we are never going to get out of this credibly without transparency. What I did that broke a norm was I stepped away from the Attorney General to offer that transparency. I stepped away from my boss. And Mm. I I was doing that on purpose. 
And I knew I would get enormous heat for it. So the story ends there. Yes, we're done. <laughs> Except, of course, it doesn't, because 12 days before the election itself, you reopened that investigation after your team found hundreds of thousands of emails on the laptop of Anthony Weiner, the ex-husband of Clinton's aide, uh, Humer Abedin. So that is the moment which, presumably, you have played over and over in your head, and many of us here in the audience will have done the same. Why did you go public? Why did you open it then? Why didn't you wait? There would be a totally coherent, rational position to say, you know what, this may have to be done, but I just need more time. I'm not going to say anything now. Yeah. Uh, the biggest nightmare of my professional life, hardest decision I've ever been part of. I'm sitting there 11, this 12 days before the election when we started debating what to do, and I've been told we need to reopen this investigation because we've found hundreds of thousands of her emails. Remember, we only found an entire universe of 30,000 originally. She turned over 30,000 to the Department of State and she deleted another 30,000. This is hundreds of thousands of her emails and something much more important than that. We never found any emails from her first three months as Secretary of State because then she was using a BlackBerry, a personal BlackBerry account, and we never found any. Remember, we opened by talking about the importance of intent. If there was going to be evidence that Hillary Clinton knew she was doing something with classified information she shouldn't do, it would likely be then when somebody emailed her back saying, hey, boss, you can't talk about this kind of stuff on an unclassified system. So I'm sitting there with the investigative team. They said, boss, there are hundreds of thousands of emails, and we think we may have found the missing emails. This could change the result. And the Department of Justice, this is something people overlook, the Obama Department of Justice believes we have to get a search warrant. So everybody agreed with that. We need to reopen. So what do I do? I have told Congress, and so has the Attorney General repeatedly under oath in the summer, and the American people, we're done here. There's no case here. And the Republicans screamed that we were corrupt. And we fought back and said, no, no, no. There's nothing here. This is done. The American people can rely on it. Now it's October 27th. And that's not true anymore in a huge way. And the whole thing may change. Oh, my God. The norm that I've lived my entire career by, there are no rules about this, but a norm is if you can avoid action in the run-up to an election, you avoid action that might have any impact on the election. My problem was I'm sitting there 12 days before the election, and I can only see two actions. I can speak or I can conceal. If I speak, that'll be really bad. It's 12 days before an election. Oh my God. What about the other one? If I conceal from the American people in Congress that they're relying on a lie, I believe I'll destroy the FBI for the rest of my natural life. Forget about me. The institution will be destroyed. I cannot conceal. And so there's only, I, no one's ever come up with another choice for me. Speak or be silent. Speak or conceal. And everybody might reach a different conclusion, but you stare at that on October 28th and tell me that's not the hardest decision you've seen. And we debated and debated and debated. And I asked my staff, tell the attorney general, I think I have to tell Congress. And the word came back saying, she thinks that's a bad idea, but she doesn't want to speak to you about it. Except this is where you appear guilty of double standards because you knew, the FBI knew, there was a concurrent FBI investigation into the alleged links between Trump's team and Russia. You knew that, but you decided not to share that 
with the public. So the thing that is really hard to understand is faced with this awful speak, conceal, speak, conceal, everyone's on your side. But then you throw in the fact that there was this other investigation into the other side, and you did conceal that. Yeah. I get why people say that, but you have to stare at the facts to see how very, very different the situations are. The Hillary Clinton investigation began with a public referral. We wouldn't talk about it for three months, even though it had begun with a public referral, a public document sent to us. Three months later, we said we're doing this work, and we wouldn't talk about it again until we finished it. And she was the target of that investigation. It was about her. And we finished the investigation. The Russia counterintelligence investigation was not focused on Donald Trump. We opened it in late July to try and figure out, are any Americans working with the Russians on this massive effort that we see going on with the Russians? But wouldn't that have been worth telling them? Well, I guess I'd have to ask you, what, what do you imagine me saying to the American people? American people, I want you to know this. We've just opened an investigation. We don't know whether there's anything to it. It doesn't involve Donald Trump, but it involves some people who are peripheral to his campaign, not key people, but... We don't know there's anything there, but we thought you ought to know that. But that's kind of the same as the Wiener emails, isn't it? You know, he wasn't part of that. You found emails that you didn't yet know would lead directly oh, I see to it very. I, okay, I, I, but I see it very, very differently. Because we've already spoken about the closure of that investigation, mm. which is what puts us on the horns of that dilemma. Speak or conceal. And so I see it as very, very different. It was actually so obvious to everyone involved that our norms did not justify any talk about a brand new counterintelligence investigation, that it never came up. I don't remember anybody raising, should we talk about this? What we wrestled with, what President Obama wrestled with was, should we tell the American people about what the Russians are doing? And not whether we're trying to figure out whether Americans are part of it. What should we tell them about this big effort that we just figured out in, actually we figured it out starting in the middle of June, when they started to release stolen documents and to come back to something we talked about earlier, it was then that I concluded, remember I said that the classified stuff will come out after I'm dead? No, no, no. In the middle of June, all of a sudden it dawned on me, that stuff about Loretta Lynch, that's coming now. This was when the the Russian hacked email started appearing just at the beginning of the Democratic So that's coming now. Another reason I thought, I love Loretta, I got to get away from her to announce this result. So then come forward to the summertime. What do we say about the broader investigation? I actually offered to be the voice of inoculation to the American people. I wrote an op-ed that we were going to send to the New York Times where I said, hey, American people, the Russians are coming for our election. They're trying to interfere with it. It's a massive effort, cyber and all kinds of other things. And the administration didn't take me up on it. President Obama wrestled with it all the way until October. Wasn't there a problem, though, that you felt she was always going to win, that somewhere you'd made a calculation that you had to keep her presidency clean, that, you know, once again, the drumbeat of the conservative media was ringing in your ears and you didn't shut out the polls or the press or the pundits and you thought, well, she's going to be president. You made that assumption, didn't you? Not consciously, I didn't. I I really worked hard to keep out of my conscious deliberations any consideration of the polls or politics. In my book, I guess I've made a mistake for a a Washington-related book. I've tried to be introspective. And so I asked myself that question. The whole world thought she was going to be president. Could that have influenced my decision? And the, the honest answer has to be, of course it could influence my decision. I actually don't think it changes the decision. It just made it easier. 
in a way. If Donald Trump were up by 20 points in the polls, I still can't conceal that because it will still destroy the FBI. But if Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president, it's easy to avoid concealing because you will, her, her presidency will be doomed from the moment she takes office because the FBI covered up for her to allow her to get elected. As you know, um, Hillary Clinton believes that ultimately cost her the election. When we spoke in April, I asked you if you'd talk to her about this at all. Presumably, you still haven't. No, I haven't. I've ne- I don't know her. I've never spoken to her at all. Do you think all? that's odd? There's been no private communication, no, no communication at all between the two of you? I don't, well, I don't think it's odd. I think it would be odd if I reached out to her. That... <laughs> Maybe. I don't mean that facetiously. Look, yeah. that, that she's a person, for reasons that I totally understand, is in a lot of pain. I understand why she focuses on me, at least in part, for the source of that pain. That makes me feel bad. I can't help that. I have nothing against her. I wasn't trying to hurt her. Um, I've read her, that chapter of her book where she talks about she thinks I shivved her with mm. a prison homemade knife kind of thing. And if I talked to her, I would say... I'm not trying to plug my book to you, Secretary Clinton. <laughs> I'm but sure she's could, got numerous copies. <laughs> well, if she could just read those two chapters of the book, she won't agree with me. Maybe she won't. But she can't walk away thinking that I shivved her, that I was trying to help elect Donald Trump president. And because it's just not true. And this, anyhow, I, that, okay. that would actually be gratifying if she could take that away. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv we're going to move on to donald trump uh, in a moment so but good. before i do <laughs> just before we do though the department of justice report came out last week um it called you insubordinate not politically biased but insubordinate um i wonder if you think that you have permanently damaged the institution of the f BI and what you did? I certainly don't think permanently damaged. I think the decisions I had to make damaged, first of all, they did a lot of damage to me and my reputation, but they, they did damage the institution. But compared to what? I, I had choices to make between bad and worse, and I know it's hard to live imaginary lives, but I think if I had chosen to let Loretta Lynch announce the closing of it, and most importantly, if I had concealed in October... The Inspector General will be writing a report about how I destroyed the institutions. Do you accept insubordinate as a finding? I kind of do. And I didn't at first. (laughs) I had an emotional reaction when I saw that. I said, that's nonsense. She dumped it on me. Loretta Lynch, at the end of June, after she met privately with, with Bill Clinton on an airplane, and the world blew up in the United States, without consulting with me, 
announced publicly, I'm not going to step out of this investigation, but I, I will accept Jim Comey's recommendation and that of the career prosecutors. And so the notion that I was insubordinate by taking that that was handed to me and announcing my recommendation, and my initial reaction was that can't be right, it's actually fair because of this way. I intentionally did not tell her what I was going to say. Right? I'm her subordinate. She would normally expect that I would tell her what I was going to say. So in that sense, I was insubordinate. And that's a painful thing for a career person like me to absorb. I still believe it was the right thing to do. I think the criticism is fair, but I think it was the right thing to do. I'm going to fast forward now um, to January 2017. You're on your way to Trump Tower. You're going to tell President-elect Trump about a secret dossier. We know it as the Christopher Steele dossier. Allegations of misconduct, conspiracy between Trump's campaign team and the Russian government. And this is taking place in New York, in Trump Tower, in I think what you describe as a, a sort of gold-curtained room. What's going through your head? There were two parts to this briefing, and it was ordered by President Obama. After the election, he directed the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, under the leadership of the Director of National Intelligence, to pull together all the American government's intelligence on what the Russians did and how we know it. And so that effort lasted about a month. And in early January, President Obama's deadline, he was briefed on it in the Oval Office, and then the leaders of Congress were briefed, and then we flew to New York to meet the incoming president and his team. And so there were two parts to the briefing. The first was the director of national intelligence was telling the president-elect about the findings of this entire report. And that, I was not nervous about that part of the briefing. The next part was the part that gave me a pain in my stomach. was that I had drawn the assignment to stay behind and meet alone with the president-elect to brief him on a portion of the material from what's now known as the Steele dossier that made salacious allegations about his engagement with prostitutes in Moscow during a visit to the uh, Miss Universe pageant in 2013. And the intelligence community thought and, and cleared this with this, President... This is the one that the, the American press euphemistically called PP-gate, right? <laughs> it's, it's about the prostitutes being ordered by President Trump to pee, piss on the bed in which the Obamas once stayed in a Moscow hotel, right? Is, is that a... Words that have never left my lips. <laughs> Not to him. You didn't actually say that to him, right? No, and I, and the, the, I don't like to say any of it. Um, <laughs> but, but my assignment was, and President Obama was told this is the way we're going to approach it, that because I was staying and the, the CIA leader was leading, the director of national intelligence was leaving, and the FBI has counterintelligence responsibilities... We couldn't keep this secret from the president-elect. We thought it was about to become public, so we don't want to keep secrets from the new president. And one of the ways, if there's anything to it, and we didn't know there was anything to it, but if there's anything to it, one of the ways the FBI defeats efforts to mm -hmm. blackmail is we go to the person who might be blackmailed and said, hey, we want you to know we know about this. Did you believe any of it? I didn't believe it. <laughs> Actually, when I first saw it, I didn't believe it at all. And I, I, my view changed a little bit on that. How much of it do you believe now? Another thing I never... This I will actually say. I, I think it's possible that it's true. All now, of I, it. I couldn't, well, all of it's a hard thing. I mean, the, the whole... The salacious stuff, then. Yeah, the, the incident at the Miss Universe, I think it's possible it's true. Now, I can't assign a, a percentage to the probability, but it's, 
it's non-zero. <laughs> and I say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I know it's funny, but I'm not saying it to be funny. It, it's uh, just based on my encounters with the president after he became president, that his, his constantly bringing it up in order to deny it. Um, so he knew all this. He knew what you were going to tell no, him. No, I don't know he that he ready. knew that. No, I, I don't know that. And so the plan was, I will stay behind to meet with the president-elect alone to tell him this as my first meeting with him. And, and so that was the part I was, I'm not sure how much I was paying attention to the first meeting because I knew the second meeting was going to be very difficult. And so we did that. I met alone with him and it was such a stressful thing for me. I actually remember looking down on myself from the ceiling, like an out-of-body experience. I'm talking to the president-elect about prostitutes. How did I end up here? Um, and, and so, but I don't know, not, his reaction did not tell me one way or another whether he knew what I was going to say, but I didn't go into the, the, some of the details you went into. I wanted to put him on notice, so I just talked about prostitutes in Moscow, Ritz, I think I said Ritz-Carlton, Miss Universe pageant. If that doesn't do it, I don't need to go any further. And so that, that's what I told him about. This was one of the first of many occasions that you found yourself alone with him. You describe a dinner, a sort of an early dinner that he's booked with you, um, and he demands your loyalty. And are the hairs on your neck going up again at that point? Yeah. And it surprised me that all I could think of in the moment was don't move, don't blink, don't, don't twitch. And so I just stared at him. And if I'd been more prepared for that, I might have had something better to do, but I just stared. But why wasn't your response to say, Mr. President, that's not my job? Yeah, that's what I meant by the better to do. <laughs> yeah. Was that going through your head at all? Did you think, I have to shut this down and explain to him what my role is right now? Uh, shut this down is difficult with any president. Again, you're alone with the President of the United States. He's just taken office. So I don't want to be too hard on myself. It would take someone unusual in that moment to say, Mr. President, let me tell you how it's supposed to work. And especially with this president, given his style of interaction, it's just waves of words. To get something in, you have to interrupt. Because he kept on sort of auditioning you for your own job, right? Do you still want it? Are you going to stay on? Would you like to carry on? You're right. I think that's right before the loyalty request. And that's when I started to get a weird feeling because he had already several times told me he hoped I was staying. And now he was talking like I needed to ask for my job. And... So that was odd. And then he directly asked for my loyalty. And again, all I could think of in the moment was, don't respond, just stare at him. He then broke. We stared at each other for a couple seconds, which is a long time alone with the president. We just asked you a question. And then he looked down at his salad and we continued on. But I got better because then I used other opportunities during the conversation to interrupt, which you have to do, to interrupt, to stress the importance of the independence the distance, why it matters so much, why it's a paradox, I said to him. So many presidents think they have to pull the justice institutions close because trouble comes from there and it makes things worse. We have to be at a distance. And so by the time he came back around to asking me again for loyalty, I had been able to get this in, the things that if I'd had the presence of mind to do, I would have front-loaded, but I got it in. But you've started writing memos at this point. Now, I'm, I'm curious, because the memos are notes that 
you know you need to make to record these conversations? Did you imagine, you must have imagined that they would one day be made public, right? No, I didn't actually. I thought it's possible, but that I needed them in the event there was ever a dispute about these conversations to protect the FBI and to protect myself because we were talking about things that touched on him personally and that affected the core of the FBI's responsibilities and me personally and honestly that I, he might lie about it. And so I never did that with President Obama. I never did it with President Bush. But I thought I have to have a contemporaneous record. God willing, I'll never need it. But if there's a circumstance where it becomes germane and the president's going to lie about it, I need a record. Right. And it hits a, a height when he asks you to drop the investigation into his security advisor, Michael Flynn, Mike Flynn, over Russian connections. You are sure he said that to you? There is no question in your mind that he asked you to drop that investigation? Because he denies it, of course. Yes, I'm aware of that. Uh, I, I, am, I am absolutely certain. And here's how you know how certain I am. I testified, not only did I write a memo about it right afterwards, I testified under oath about that conversation in front of the United States Senate last June when I thought there were tapes. I thought, because President Trump tweeted at me, that I better mm -hmm. hope there aren't tapes of our conversations. I went and testified about it under oath, believing there might be an audio tape from the Oval Office, because I know what that audio tape would say. So just back to that meeting, he's told you to drop the investigation. Who do you tell? Who do you trust in the White House? Who do you look to as your sort of mature statesmen and women to go to? In the White House? There was nobody to go to. Uh, I went back and met with the leadership team at the FBI, general counsel, my chief of staff, the deputy director. I think but the there was no one, there was no one who reported to Trump, who advised him in his close circle that you felt you could say, this is, this is getting dangerous. No. I had tried to have a conversation like that with his chief of staff a week before. You're talking about a meeting that happened on Valentine's Day, February 14th. A week before that, I'd gone there to speak to the president's chief of staff. And one of the things we talked about was the importance of communications with the FBI by the White House going through regular channels. And I laid out how it was supposed to work. At the end of that meeting, he said, hey, do you want to see the president? <laughs> okay. So we're now in May of 2017. You've had the chicken supper and a few of these meetings and the Mike Flynn thing. So and... Chicken parmesan. Chicken parmesan, yeah. The, yeah. the prawn salads. Yep. I remember the menu. Yeah. Um, and you are not in Washington. I think you're in Arizona or you're in, you hear the news. When I get fired? That you've been fired. Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles yeah. speaking to employees and I see it on TVs <laughs> at the back of the room. Actually, the, at first it said, Comey resigns. And I knew that wasn't true. <laughs> and so I thought it was a prank. I turned to my staff. You probably won't believe this, but the FBI is a hilarious place. <laughs> and I, I, my that. staff was over here to my right, and I turned to them and said, that took a lot of work. And then I went back talking to the employees. And then it changed and said, Comey fired. And I thought, okay, they're not, that's not them. And that's how I found out. Without you being fired, there would be no Mueller investigation, presumably. Steve Bannon called the firing of Jim Comey the worst political mistake in modern history. What he meant was that you weren't about to hold back, the gloves were off, and everyone would get to know everything. Do you 
sense that if you hadn't been fired, we wouldn't be having the Mueller investigation? I don't know. We, we might have. That because the Department of Justice was still trying to sort out how they were going to supervise that investigation. Because the Attorney General was about to recuse himself, step away from anything related to Russia, and I knew that was coming, which is why I couldn't go to him to tell him about this. Mm. And the incoming number two had promised during his confirmation hearings that he would look at the question of whether they should appoint a special prosecutor to handle this. So it's possible that even if I hadn't been fired, there would still be a, a special prosecutor. Um, I think what hastened the appointment of the special prosecutor is that I caused the world to know about Donald Trump's request on Valentine's Day that I drop the investigation. And do you think... And that put tremendous pressure on the Department of Justice. Is, is your sense at this point, going back to the other Giuliani, the one you're not so fond of, that we will see a, a closure to the Mueller investigation that is satisfactory? Depends on what your definition of satisfactory is. Do you think the, Robert Mueller will be allowed to finish his job? I do. I think despite the noise that it's likely, although you never want to say for certain with our president, but it's likely that he's figured out that not only would it be politically disastrous to fire Mueller, it would be ineffective because the Department of Justice is almost entirely made up of career people. Somebody else would pick up, if not the whole thing, pieces of the investigation, and you can only f fix it by firing everyone in the FBI or the Department of Justice, you, and that can't happen. Do you think the Mueller investigation will ultimately find there were connections between Trump himself and Russia? I don't know. What is you your know, gut feeling? I don't have a gut feeling because I don't know what he's developed since I left. I can only say one thing with certainty. Well, two things. Everything you've read in the media about Bob Mueller's investigation is uninformed because there have been no leaks from Bob Mueller's operation. And so we, none of us, including me, have any idea what he knows. We've seen the charges against 19 different people, which shows he's working very quickly. But I don't know where he'll end up, except my second certainty is if he's left to do his job, he will find the collection of facts that allows us to see what the truth is. And I hope Democrats aren't, I know they are, but they shouldn't be rooting for a particular outcome. Republicans shouldn't be. We should be rooting for the truth. If Bob Mueller can do his job, we will be able to see the truth. And I don't know what it'll be. I really don't. It's entirely possible he will find there is not credible evidence that President Trump either participated or knew about conspiracy with the Russians in connection with their election interference. It's possible he'll conclude Donald Trump did not have the requisite state of mind under American law to obstruct justice even when he... Um, I, I, I didn't mean that as a shot at him, but I see what you're doing. <laughs> he did. I want to open it up to questions in a second. Um, just before I do... Um, because we're right on the cusp of an extraordinary moment uh, in Trump's own political fortune, and dare I say, in the heartbeat of America right now. Um, we saw the president row back on the child separation immigration policy last night, a sign presumably that he saw how damaging that had been. Uh, a question from somebody earlier via Twitter asked me to put to you, are American children safer in schools or cages? Uh, which probably gives you a sense of how that whole thing was received here and, and 
the questions that the world has about it. What are your thoughts on that? It was horrible, immoral conduct that may serve as an inflection point for America. The challenge in America is we go through these. Our line is always upward sloping, but it's a jagged line. We make progress, we retrench and react. We make progress, we retrench and react. And the turning point between the ending of a retrenchment and more progress is often what I call the awakening of the giant. The American people are a bell curve. At the wings are wing nuts. <laughs> From the far left and the far right, they're passionate, they follow politics, all of that. At the middle is the sleeping giant. It's the embodiment of the values of the American people. They're not following politics, they're raising their kids. Every so often in American history, they awaken. They awakened when dogs bit children in Birmingham, Alabama, and children were killed with bombs in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. And as a result of that, Lyndon Johnson changed our country because all Americans, vast majority, supported voting rights for black Americans, civil rights for black Americans. Every so often, the giant is awakened by something that offends no matter where you are in the political spectrum. I don't want to say this was worth it, but if there's good to come out of this, it may be stirring the giant. And that's why Donald Trump ran so fast and lied so much about this policy, because he, one thing he is gifted at is sensing the giant's awakening. He can feel it, and the Republicans could feel it, and they ran from this. If there's good to come from children being in cages in my beloved country, it's the giant awakens and realizes our values are at stake now. Forget immigration, forget taxes, forget guns, important issues. We are a collection of ideas in the United States of America, and they are values. And if we lose those, we're done. The giant awakens and focuses on those values. Our country changes. We see, though, here in Europe, a creeping authoritarianism in Poland now, in Hungary, the response to migration in Italy, uh, the idea of a census for the Roma. I'm wondering whether you sense that America is in its own grip of the rise of a new fascism? No. America is reacting as it has done so many times throughout its history. One of the reasons I'm an optimist is I know American history. We have been here before. Our country was in the grip of Joseph McCarthy from 1950 to 1954. We were in the grip of the Ku Klux Klan from 1920 to 1924. All as a result of a reaction to tremendous change and progress. We just had a period not only the financial downturn, we are on a path to becoming a majority-minority country. I think that's a really cool thing. That's deeply unsettling. We elected a black, black president. We have globalization depriving people of their blue-collar jobs in middle America. That's deeply unsettling. And as a result, we have a reaction to that. Donald Trump's not a cause. He's a reflection. He's a product of this unsettling. Inevitably, the fever breaks in America and the central values reassert themselves. It has happened so many times before, it will happen again. Our job as Americans is to drive the conversation to shorten the period of recovery and to waken the giant as fast as we can to speed that recovery. Okay, we're going to open the floor to questions. If we can have some lights up, then I can see you a bit more. Um, oh, that's much better. <laughs> We, we haven't finished yet. 
We haven't finished yet. Um, it's your turn. And as I said at the beginning, if you can keep them as, as tight and concise as you can, we get lots more in. Hi, Rebecca Windsor here. I, um, thank you for talking. It was absolutely amazing. Um, short question. Uh, Donald Trump's approval rating is surprisingly rising recently. He's tried to blame uh, this child uh, in cages policy on Democrats. And Fox News is his constant cheerleader. Do you think there's a chance of him being re-elected? Okay. So will Donald Trump be re-elected? Don't answer that one yet. Number five. Mike, number five. Thank you. How likely do you think it is for the giant to waken up in time for the midterm elections? Ah, there we go. Yeah. Great questions. And, and they connect, obviously, in a lot of ways. I'll take the re-election first. It's possible in this way. He has the reliable support, at least so far, of in the upper 30s percent of the, of the people in, in opinion polls, which seems depressing until you realize that Richard Nixon, on the day he resigned, had a 36 or 37 percent approval rating. <laughs> well. There's always going to be a portion of America that for reasons that we've touched on here today, believes that there's a, the trade of the impact on our values for the policy gains is worth it. It's just always going to be that way. The vast majority, his numbers have creeped up towards 40%, still historically low. The vast majority disagree. If they turn out and vote, which is one of the things I'm trying to accomplish... I'm never going to run for office, but I need people to vote their values so that the giant awakens and participates in the election. But he's counting on this, that the Democrats will pick someone from the far left. I talked about the wings and the nuts at the wings, that they'll pick someone far left, and that will lead the great middle to stay home. They won't vote for that. They won't vote for him, but they'll stay home. Or an independent candidate will be compelled to run in the middle and he'll get reelected with 34, 35% of the vote. It's possible. I don't know whether it's likely. It's also possible that he sees, if, the, if it shakes out, the Democrats pick someone who can actually attract, run on a values campaign and attract the middle. He may decide he's already made America great. I'm going back to casinos or whatever it is. Um, so that's the first. Will, will the giant awaken? Then I'll come to the norm. Inevitably, Yes. The only thing new is the history you don't know. I have a pretty good sense of American history and the patterns of it. The giant always awakens. Now, sometimes it takes a while. Winston Churchill said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they have exhausted all other possibilities. (laughs) So do you think, in in terms of the the midterms, do you think Donald Trump can hold on to the Senate, hold on to the House? I don't. I don't know whether awaken in time for the midterms. These children in cages is a big, big deal for all the right reasons, being horrifying and touching our core values as Americans. And so we'll see. There's an energy in America that's inspiring right now. We have record numbers of women running for political office. We have kids engaging in ways they haven't in a generation or more on issues across, not just guns, but on lots of issues. We have people, and I don't mean this sarcastically, there's a renewed appreciation by Republicans for Barack Obama and by Democrats for George W. Bush, because those are very different people, but they were both traditionalists and institutionalists who respected the office. And so people are starting to rise above. The reason I called this book A Higher Loyalty is 
To me, all of leadership in life is about looking first at the things at the higher level, the values. So I see that happening and being hastened by what's happening to these kids. And I think we may see maybe a slightly groggy giant, but a much more awakened giant come November than even today. Yes, sir. Recent reports have shown that while you were conducting the the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, that you were using your own private Gmail account. Don't you think that that's a bit hypocritical and that casts a shadow over the FBI? Good yep. Good question. Okay, the Good Gmail account. Yeah, I'd like to ask about uh, tampering with voting machines and whether you're aware of any credible reports that voting machines were tampered with in such a way that would affect the tally. The Gmail thing. Yeah, it's absolutely true that I wrote my own speeches as director of the FBI, that I would write them at home on my personal laptop and then send them to my office account, these public speeches, on my Gmail account to my government account. And if I wanted to keep working on the draft, I would then send it back home, then send it back into my office. It reflects a fundamental misunderstanding, and I'm sorry to say, even by Hillary Clinton herself, about what the investigation was about. You said this at the beginning. It was not about her use of a non-governmental email system. I don't care. It was about, did she mishandle classified information by talking about it on an unclassified system? There is not any accusation that any of my speeches involve classified information. So I, I guess I get why it was included in the report, but it reflects a confusion about what the investigation was. What was the next one? Voting machines. Voting machines. The good news is no. Just we explain ne- that yeah, question. We never but- found any evidence that the vote itself was hacked, that Russian hackers or anybody else reached down to the precinct level to the machines. The great thing about the American electoral system is it's a huge hairball, that there's no centralization whatsoever. It's an old lady and an old man wheeling something out under the basketball hoop at a gym. It's very, very difficult to penetrate. We never found any evidence of penetration. We found evidence that the Russians had penetrated voter registration databases at the state level. But, and we're not actually sure what they were doing with that, but that they never went, attempted, or got to a voting machine. I'm going to go right up to the top, to the, I think we call that the balcony, uh, to Mike's eight and nine. Yes, hello. Can I ask, if you could go back to September, October 2016, knowing what you know now, So knowing about the Trump Tower meeting, knowing about all of the interactions between Trump um, associates and and Trump campaign officials in Russia, and knowing that there was a real possibility that Trump would be elected president, would you do anything differently? What and why? Would Would you do anything differently if you could live that again? And number nine... Hi, my name is Nina Mohanty. I'm an American citizen as well, living here. Um, I wanted to thank you so much for your service. Um, first of all, I once had a dream of working for the FBI, and I no longer do. So, what advice would you give to young Americans like myself who feel a strong calling to serve? but feel a bit disillusioned or put off public service right now, given the political climate? 
Great. Great okay, thank you very much. Hi, my name is Chloe Thomas. I'm at the student at the University of Virginia. I was wondering if you think that there'll be Russian interference in the upcoming midterms. Okay, let's, I'm going to put Russia in big, bold capitals now and ask you to expand on Russia interference. How far do you think it goes? Do you think it's in the midterms? Do you think it was part of anything that happened here with the Brexit vote? Do you think it has changed the way elections have gone since 2016 or before? Um, if you don't mind me piggybacking onto the rest of that. And the other two questions, this lady says she'd like to, to work for the FBI but feels very disillusioned now about going to public service in America. And what would you change if you could go back to September, October 2016? Yeah, the, the what would I change question, I've asked myself that probably not a million times, but probably a thousand times. And I've asked myself this question, if I knew what I know now, would I do something deeply unprincipled in October and conceal? And, and that's a hard question. I, I'd like to think I would still do what I did. I would still, even knowing the future, know I can't do that. As director of the FBI, I can't make decisions based on my assessment of politicians. And one of the searing moments on October 27th was one of the best lawyers I had was a woman who was very quiet and brilliant, and I used to have to draw her into conversations because if you could get words to come out of her mouth, you needed to listen to them. And she actually volunteered and said, should you consider that what you're about to do may help elect Donald Trump president of the United States? And I said, thank you for asking that question because I suspected it was on a lot of minds. I said, not for a moment because down that path lies the death of the FBI as an independent force in America. If I ever start making calls that way, we're just another partisan tribe. So I don't think I would do anything different, but it would be an even harder decision if I was back there now able to see the future. Uh, can I talk about the FBI? Can sure. I recruit for the FBI? Hmm. One of the reasons, in fact, the main reason I wrote a book is not to write about Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton's emails, but to write about ethical leadership so that I could offer a vision, especially to young people, of what it can be and what it should be so they don't withdraw we need you so much. We need you so much. And we can't have you saying, it's just so icky. And pulling back from public service, from public life. We have to have you. And so what I hope to do is show people, there's a whole lot of good people making really hard decisions, but in a thoughtful, ethical way. And it's really cool to do moral work, work with moral content. It doesn't pay any money. It's incredibly stressful. It's addictive. And one of the things I hope with the book is to show people that vision of leadership and what it's like to choose to do good for a living, you will never regret it. But there's a chance today young people are going to pull back. Now, I said to you, I already see in the United States they're resisting that. They're literally out in the street participating, but it's still a danger. Russia? The last one was about Russia. Um, the lady was asking specifically about Russia interference in the midterms. Yeah, it's a very important question to ask. Because of the nature of Russia's active measures campaigns, they actively and regularly interfere in proceedings of the West with the overwhelming goal being to divide us and weaken us and undermine our democracy. They came for our election not because of Donald Trump or because of Hillary Clinton. They came overwhelmingly because they don't want America or the UK to be a shining city on the hill. 
to inspire other democracies. They want to show the world it's just as corrupt and dirty as anything else. Don't listen to them. Now, in our case, Putin also happened to hate Hillary Clinton and decided he likes business people. He can make deals with them. He liked Donald Trump. They succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. Their wildest dreams. Not only did Donald Trump get elected president, who refuses to criticize, even in private, Vladimir Putin, but look at the division that we see in our country right now. So you bet you, they're coming back for 2018. They will sure be back in the United States in 2020. And I'm very worried. I've been out of the government for over a year, so I don't know for sure. But I see indications that we are not doing much to try to meet that threat. The outgoing director of the NSA, who's someone I very much like, Admiral Mike Rogers, testified publicly that he has tools that could be used to thwart that threat that are not being deployed because he has not been given the authority. Mike Rogers is a guy who does not say much. That's deeply concerning. So they will be back, and we will not be adequately prepared for it. Why not? Why do you think there's no one on the, well, on either side, on Republicans or Democrats' side, that are, are willing to implement what you need to do to stand up to that? Well, I think the only thing you can point out is the executive branch led by Donald Trump, because the Democrats don't have the power, and there's a reluctance that I, I honestly can't fully explain by the president personally to take action adverse to Russia. There's energy in the Congress to do that. Even energy I gather from media accounts at lower levels in the White House, not in the president himself. I don't know whether that's, there's a causal connection between that and what Admiral Rogers was saying, but it, it seems reasonable to me. Let's take some, yeah, we're back uh, down here. Make them really good ones. Hi, Ben Miller. You said 28th of October 2016 was such a tough decision. Nine days later, you went to Congress and said, actually, no problem, despite several hundred thousand emails you went through. During that period of time, you must have become increasingly confident there wasn't an issue. Had you waited 24 hours or 48 hours, you'd have known more. Had you waited four days, you'd have known more. Surely there was no reason to decide on the 28th to speak. You could have waited a few days. You could have gained some confidence where there was something really there before you put your nose into an election. Good question. Seems really unfair to make you end on this rather sticky one about the dates. No, this is a great um, question. <laughs> but if this you don't totally mind wrapping question. us up with that. So then. the question is, it's October 28th, and the team tells me, we got hundreds of thousands of emails, we cannot, I pressed them so hard on this. They said we cannot complete the review before the election. It'll take weeks and weeks and weeks for two reasons. We don't have the capability to deduplicate electronically on our classified networks. All this material has to be on our classified networks because we know it contains classified information. And so we'll have to read each email. And we can't bring in recruits like we would to look for a knife or a gun at a crime scene because they have to know context. There's only six or eight or ten people who can actually do this and know what they're looking for. So we have to have a small group of people read hundreds of thousands of emails. We cannot possibly finish it. And I pressed and pressed and pressed. And so given that, why would I wait? Now, to come back to the question, knowing what you know now, I forgot this. If I knew now that the wizards at the FBI's Operational Technology Division would write custom software that could be loaded onto the classified network and dedupe electronically and cut it down to 6,000 unique emails that had to be read that they could then read night after night after night after night and finish on the Sunday before the election, 
You're damn right I might have waited. I might have. The reason I say might is two things. If you wait and then find out it's significant, you're even closer to the election. And also, Loretta Lynch raises with me, this is the prospect of a leak. We're seeking a criminal search warrant in New York. So the circle of people who know about this has just gotten a whole lot larger. What if it leaks the week before the election? Then you've got the worst of both. You've spoken through a leak and you concealed it and were exposed by a leak. And so look, a reasonable person might have said, let's wait four days and see what happens. Given what they were telling me, I couldn't think of a logical reason to wait. And, and then once they finished, again, the press reports this all the time, they found nothing. No, 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 not true. We found thousands of new emails. We found, new, we found emails with classified information in them. We found things that made us need to investigate further, but not as to Hillary Clinton. It did not change the investigator's view of Hillary Clinton, even though we found new material. And so, look, if I'd known we could have gotten it done, I might have taken the chance of waiting, although even that would be dangerous. The only dispute, actually, the only diversity of opinion in the Bureau team of 12 that argued about this was, having finished, should we tell Congress that it hasn't changed our view? And there were one or two dissenters who I think were just so pained by the whole experience, they said, we shouldn't be talking anymore. And my view was, look, I told Congress we reopened this thing. If you are all really done, and you're telling me it's not fatigue talking, but you are done and our view has not changed, how do I conceal that from the American people? And so I sent the second letter on a Sunday, and then I went and got a margarita as big as my head. (laughs) (laughs) You've called your book A Higher Loyalty. You've said that you have no interest, no desire to go into politics. I'm assuming that as an FBI director, you didn't vote. Would I be wrong? Correct. I did not. So now you're a private citizen. Who do you want to vote for in 2020? You're not a Republican anymore. Would you vote Democrat? Who is your ideal candidate? I don't. I know who it's not. Um, (laughs) I I intend to find, and, and God willing, there will be this person, some man or woman who most importantly reflects those values. And I don't care that much about their policy views. The next president has to restore, has to move the line back up when it comes to truth and the rule of law and equal protection of the law, the things that are at the heart of the United States. I hope the Democrats are thoughtful enough to find somebody who reflects those values and can attract a big portion of the giant. If that happens, this will not be a close call, and that's the person I want to vote for. I don't know who that person is yet, so I'm not prepared to answer your follow-up question, but I, I crave, America craves that person who can represent us and say, this is who we are as a country, and so that's who I'll vote for. Jim Comey, what an absolute pleasure to talk to you this evening. Thank Thank you you all very much. Thank you.